Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of the New Books in Folklore channel. And today, my guest is Lee Biggood. Lee Biggood is an associate professor of bluegrass, old time and country music studies in the Department of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University. He's also a performing bluegrass musician. And today he'll be talking about his new book, which is called Czech Bluegrass, Notes from the Heart of Europe. Lee Biggood, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. And appropriately enough, you're actually speaking from the heart of Europe right now because you're in the Czech Republic. Whereabouts are you? Well, we, we're in Prague uh, and in the heart of the heart and the biggest city in the country. And I'm here. Uh, I have a Fulbright Scholar uh, grant. And so I'm here teaching and conducting more research for the year. I wonder if you could start by telling us all a little bit about yourself, including perhaps your how you came to be a, a folklorist or folk music scholar story. Sure. It's hilarious to me uh, to realize that the first brush with folklore that I had was when I was about 10 years old. And I went with some grown-ups, some adults that I played music with at the time. I was playing fiddle. And they took me to the a state folklore festival or something like that in White Springs in Florida. And I entered the fiddle contest and I think I won second or third place in the junior division. And I, I was awarded maybe $10 and 86 cents or some fractional of the, of the total pot. But I realized recently that that was recorded and it's, and it's recorded on the folklore archives of Florida. And I'm listed there as a tradition bearer. So I was actually first a tradition there, but that, 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 that I was involved in this whole folklore thing. But it's that was part of my uh, progression in, in learning about the communities and the musics that, that make up what I study now. And I eventually came to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and there I was playing classical music and also kept up doing old time and bluegrass music. And eventually through uh, working with professors like Robert Cantwell and Sarah Weiss and other folks, I just learned more about ethnomusicology and about folklore and American studies and realized that's, that's really a way that I could make sense of all these different musical communities and milieus that I had been in so far growing up. Tell us how you got interested in bluegrass in the Czech Republic, and also how this all kind of fits into your vision of what folklore is, because as we discuss quite regularly here on this podcast, folklore is much broader in some ways than people think of it when they haven't had a background in folklore studies. Absolutely. Well, I was influenced from classes I took in my undergraduate studies um, and the folklore program at UNC Chapel Hill was was influential. especially in, in, in terms of uh, Southern studies, regional studies. And so that, it, that really informs my work now working within the field of Appalachian studies. 
and just the the humane approach to studies of culture that I um, that that I was instilled in me by those those folks has been really powerful. Uh, and then later, the since these days I, I teach a, I developed a, a three course history sequence of bluegrass history one, bluegrass history two, and survey of contemporary bluegrass for our students at ETSU in this bluegrass old time and country music studies program. And it's a rare to have a whole three course sequence that all the majors have to take. And the main text that we use is uh, bluegrass, a history by Neil Rosenberg. And through using his, that book and other works that he's produced, uh, the transforming tradition volume and some other ones, I, I just, I think he's really my main influence from the field of folklore. And it's been a real honor to get to know him a little bit more. And, uh, just leading up now to this memoir that he just released this book from university of Illinois press that talks about a lot of his early, uh, important experiences as a folklorist student and as a bluegrass musician. And so it's been, it's been really interesting. Uh, I just finished reading that a little while ago. Uh, it, it gives me a lot of insight into how someone can be involved in the musical community as an insider or as a specialist, perhaps, and as a an outsider, as a as a study as a studier, as a researcher, and a part of the academy. So this participant observer divide, uh, he's provided a model that is really appealing to me and has been really influential. Can you talk a little bit more about what that model is? Oh well, <laughs> in a nutshell. Okay, well, I guess for me the the term that has been really appealing to me lately is public folklore or public scholarship, I guess. Uh, I'm working more within the academic context, not within a like a state folk- folklorist or an office like that. But I, uh, I guess I see one of my jobs is, uh, is to support people in the communities that I, that I study and learn about um, and to provide interpretation for them and, you know, when I'm here in the Czech Republic, I I do things like tr- help people translate songs or help them re- uh, correct and edit text for their web pages and things like that. So I I do those things that I've I've heard from uh, like John Loman. I remember at there was this involved with folklore type things in Virginia was saying part of his his role as a folklorist is to help people uh, help showcase people that so that their folklore and that what they do can be seen and understood by other folks. And so that's, that's one uh, role that I think that I have. Um, and then producing uh, scholarship, but also other kinds of media has been something I've been working on lately. And especially with this film, Banjo Romantica, which uh, has, been, has been coming out since uh, 2013 in various forms. That was a really exciting uh, result of my research and and has turned into a big mode of outreach. And uh, that, that was a really, uh, it, was, it really surprised me how much more the film engaged people and raised questions and provided uh, avenues for conversation uh, than other things I'd done, like produce academic articles. Big surprise, right? More people are interested in it <laughs> in a film than, than an academic article. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> so the, I think uh, those kind of things that, that work with community people 
And then in my production of media and, and in my scholarship, that was, I'm, I'm thinking of, of how to, how to reach people on a, on a more community level, in addition to community participating in the academic discourse. So you cover some of this in your introduction to Czech Bluegrass, and you also talk about how you first came to become acquainted with Czech Bluegrass and the Czech Republic. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I, it started with an email group. I first uh, heard of Czech Bluegrass-style mandolin makers when I was a part of the Comando email list. So you can tell this was in the ancient past. Uh, several generations <laughs> passed in the digital world, social media, and it was a email list. So through the maybe 1998, 1999, I was hearing people talk, uh, you know, mandolin nerds getting together to talk shop. And they were mentioning these uh, makers of American style, bluegrass style mandolins over there. So I, I just, you know, that it's that first reaction that I think is so common that I see other people have. Wow, uh, it's sort of like a uh, uh, huh reaction. There's something there that doesn't compute, and th- that was the reaction I had. And but I felt I thought it was very interesting. And coming out of the, I was in the midst of these uh, classes and, and other things that were happening. My developing biomusicality, and I was thinking about where music make where music belongs. Who does it belong to? And that just that mention of bluegrass happening in the Czech Republic seemed like uh, an interesting paradox, perhaps. And and that's really what caught my attention. It just really continued on from there and snowballed. I should ask you, just before you go on, can you clarify for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with the term bimusicality, what you are referring to with that word? Sure, sure. And this is a concept developed by Mantle Hood and other folks more on the uh, on the ethnomusicology side, but the idea that there it's a perhaps a method by which a researcher would consider or frame a cross-cultural musical experience to acknowledge that you have a, an existing musicality and that you then develop uh, a another musicality. And the the metaphor there, the images of language. Perhaps you have a, a home language, and then you have another language you could be bilingual so it's it's a comparable term to that by by musicality and there's a lot of issues with that um but uh, the, the the basic concept is is that is that so in terms of your by musicality are you referring to your training in the classical tradition and then in bluegrass or your training in bluegrass and then in czech bluegrass <laughs> that's interesting well for me the formative shift was being all along i came up well, since I was four, I did classical stuff, Suzuki violin and so on. And then I uh, started doing bluegrass type things and then also early music within the academic context. And really, it was within that context that I I first started to think, huh, like there are different contexts in which this kind of music is is happening. You know, that, that uh, we, we play Bach, but it's there's a totally different culture around playing of of these of these pieces when it's in the early music environment and that that was that was the change like i realized that these different contexts called for different ways of doing and being you 
describe your background somewhat in the introduction and also talk about how your visits to the Czech Republic started with, I think, an undergraduate study abroad year. And then you've been going back a lot, it seems to me, ever since. How often would you say you go back? (laughs) Well, as often as I could. Now it's a little harder than it used to be. But I... I definitely spend a lot of time in, I've, I'm, this is my second year of presence here that is supported by a Fulbright grant. So I'm really grateful to that Fulbright program. And uh, I had a FLAS grant to do language study, foreign language and area studies grant to do a language study here in one summer. And I, I've come over funded by playing music. So uh, performing with a Czech band's in various places. So just however it worked out, it's, I think I my approach has been kind of opportunistic in that way. I, I applied for grants and did all the things that you do if you're doing field research, but I also just sought out whatever opportunities there were. Uh, it's kind of ad hoc in that way, but that's that's what I had to work with. So the first chapter is called Place, Meaning, Community, and In-Betweenness. And this in-betweenness you, you describe as relating to how the Czech musicians situate themselves in relation to America. So this is really a scene-setting chapter in terms of the, uh, the musicians that you're interacting with. Can you tell us about what you're talking about in this chapter? Sure. and uh, I, it's, it's not a concept that came from the people I was working with. It's something I came up with in understanding it myself. And I, so I, I offer it as, as an idea for, for us as we discuss it and, and, and think about what these folks are doing. So I, in that sense, it's kind of an artificial construct on my part, but I think it works to, to talk about things. And I, I, I still am just tickled by the opening anecdote that kicks it off, uh, which hinges on a joke. And so I'm, I'll let you guys read it, but it's, uh, it's a joke that uh, a musician makes on stage just in a, Oh no, you have to tell our listeners what the joke is. So there's a a group named, uh, called Relief who are leading a workshop on how to, how to, uh, conduct yourself on stage as a band. And they, uh, they're talking about how to start off a song. And uh, one of the members says, oh, usually you should, you should uh, start with the melody. If you play an introductory instrumental part, it should clearly state the melody so that the audience knows what song is coming up. And so everyone is, is clear on that. And another member is quipped about uh, uh, that if you're playing uh, a song, Stranka uh, Pamiati, that's by a Czech author. Uh, or a Czech composer and musician, you can know that it's that and not uh, Sweetheart, You Done Me Wrong or some other song. And uh, then the another member ch- chimed in and I'm, I'm realizing this is not so fun. It's not as funny when I say it. But <laughs> anyhow, the, he, he chimes in and uh, says uh, that it was uh, Bill Monroe who... Uh, who, who would have been involved in that? Anyhow, so he he jokes that um, that Petr Kuss, this Czech musician who who wrote the song, and he puts Petr Kuss on the same level as uh, Bill Monroe, 
who is an originating historical figure who, who has a lot of importance, symbolic and concrete for people who are interested in bluegrass. And so he puts Peter Kuss and Bill Monroe on the same level in a way it, through this joke. And that just had got me thinking way back when I, when this happened and I was transcribing all this, that uh, it just opens up this space where, where, where else in the world could this Czech musician be considered on the same plane as this, this, uh, you know, significant American musical figure who's has this foundational role in bluegrass. And so I, I think it's, it kicked off for me this idea that Czechs create this playful uh, in-between status that is very uh, much this as if. It's a playful imagination of what if Petr Kuss was as well-known and influential uh, and had done these foundational things like Bill Monroe. And so that, for me, that, that in-between space is... Uh, very can be very serious, but it's also very playful, and I think that's part of its power. Can you describe a little bit the scenes with which you're interacting with in the Czech Republic? How does the bluegrass scene manifest in terms of what you've come across? Because you're quite clear that you're not making general statements about all Czech bluegrass musicians. You're talking about the people with whom you've worked and have field work relationships or friendships and musical relationships and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Well, the Early on, I made a decision that was pragmatic for a number of reasons. I decided I was going to focus most on bluegrass music makers here who were really trying to perform something that was very American. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways that that can happen. That can happen in costume. That can happen in, in use of text or negotiation of language in different ways or in musical style and in different ways. So I, that was just a pragmatic choice in some ways because those were the people who were interested in interacting with me. And so it, was, it made it easy because it was the people who, who it was easy for me to, to reach out to and to, to interact with and to whom I had access. And then for on the sort of theoretical side or methodological side, that's really what became interesting for me as my fieldwork continued. It was what was the importance of this Americanness for uh, Czechs and how did they create what I call America with a K, which maybe not is the best term, but that's, that's the Czech word for when they, when they talk about America, it's, it's using the Czech word for the country. So I, I use that sometimes to point towards this in between construction of Czechness and Americanness, this mixture of the two. And uh, so I think there, the, there were people for whom that America is much more important and who, I guess I have tended to work with people who are more able to express that musically. Uh, there are a lot of people here who wear cowboy boots and who have an American flag at their country cottage out, out on a river somewhere. There are a lot of modes of Americanness that are expressed but I focused on those who had a more musical fluency uh, in that mode of Americanness, if that makes sense. Absolutely. One of the things I picked out from this chapter was this word vono or ono. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or, I'm not sure how you say it. How do you vono say it? Vono or ono, yes. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about this word? 
Sure, sure. Well, it and it's it doesn't mean anything. It's it means that, right? And sometimes it's those words that are so common that are become so loaded with meaning and also so uh, difficult to know what that meaning is, right? It's ambiguous. So the I just heard so often because it's a common word, people saying "Yo, toyavono." That's it. Like if they heard something on the radio or recording, say like, "That's what I like," and that's the the it that really motivated them, that got them excited. Uh, if they were able to play something just like uh, Earl Scruggs did, you know, they would say, yes, I, that was it. I was able to reproduce the it that lights up all my pleasure sensors and my happiness uh, centers. So uh, this idea of the it that, that lights people up, that inspires them and motivates them, the goal towards which they are moving and that can it shifts it moves it's a definitely a moving target and but it's i think it's an important concept uh, what and it, it, it that often intersects with or is the americanness that uh, that i focus on so in the second chapter which is titled Czech bluegrass histories and backgrounds you cover a little bit about how this interest in america came about and you describe the cultural landscape in the Czech Republic and how it came to be a fertile ground for bluegrass. Can you tell us about that? Sure. And the one sentence answer is it was the US military, which it's a surprising thing to realize, but it's a common story. American popular music spread around the globe during in the mid 20th century, uh, thanks to US Army, US military presence, for instance, in Japan and uh, other places. So radio, uh, Armed Forces Network Radio in Munich was uh, people in the, Ch- in the Czechoslovakian territory at the time were able to, to hear that in the 50s. And during that period of time, uh, this Bill Monroe, uh, Ralph Stanley, or the Stanley Brothers, people like that who were playing bluegrass type music were, uh, were played on country music or hillbilly music shows. The Stick Buddy Jamboree was one such that, that played in the 50s from Munich. And it started with a banjo uh, as, the, as the theme song. And then, and then they played all sorts of country music at that time, but that included the more acoustic sounds of bluegrass type music. So that was the exposure to it. But of course, I like, I like that, you, that you put the organic metaphor in there. The soil had been prepared before these seeds happened. And the very important concept there is tramping, which had been happening. It was a phenomenon that grew up earlier in the 20th century during the the late Habsburg and the early First Republic, the interwar uh, democracy that uh, emerged after World War I. And in the 20s and 30s, it was a huge phenomenon. It was a huge uh, part of, of popular culture and youth culture in Czechoslovakia. And it involved people leaving the city, going out into the country and escaping this growing industrialization and so on. It was linked to the von der Vogel movement and the scouting movement that was also uh, big during that time. But it was more uh, unorganized. It was more, it had these various Czech distinctivenesses to it. And one of the big things that grew out of the tramping uh, during the 20s and 30s was a huge repertory of songs and the practice of singing uh, out by campfires at uh, with uh, banjos mandolins uh, and guitars and so on uh, fiddles 
various uh, stringed instruments modeled uh, on various forms of popular music at the time. They often were foxtrots, uh, mashishes, other sorts of popular dance forms at the time. And uh, uh, drawing, there's some people who have studied that, the tramping music that say that those tramp uh, song practices were drawn. They, they modeled their vocality on barbershop quartet records that uh, came over from the international record industry at the time. So that tramping music, you can see it, it, it's, it laid, it laid a framework, it established a framework that really allowed Czechs to then just convert a few things and, and they could be playing bluegrass. And I'll just say one, one other really important thing goes back even further into the 19th century is the uh, Czech interest in the wild West and can't under as under, uh, state the importance of the contribution of a gentleman named Karl May, who wrote uh, Western novels in German. He lived in Saxony, right across just north of, of Bohemia. And he wrote these fantastic uh, travel novels and also Western novels about Winnetou and Old Shatterhand, these just stereotypical Westerns, even though he hadn't been there to see it. So anyhow, he wrote these novels. They were translated into pretty much every European language and they were really common. And so people had from him and other similar authors, this idea of the wild West. And that was really linked with tramping. And that all was, uh, was already in Czech's minds when they heard bluegrass. And for them, it was just bluegrass was pulled into that existing tramp culture. And it just gained a, a new format, a musical format with bluegrass. I had not heard of the tramping movement until I read your book. And I was curious, the tramp word, does it come from the English word tramp? Or is it a Czech word? Well, there's a debate about that. As with such central cultural concepts, there are a lot of different origin stories for the term, but all of them are Americans. Some people base it in this more general idea of the hobo as a tramp, someone who by choice or through circumstances forced to take to the road and lead this more shiftless uh, itinerant existence. And some people uh, connect it to a more literary source, to Jack Kerouac's The Road. Um, but it, it's definitely American. So it sounds kind of similar to the Back to the Land movement that we know of in America. Yeah. It has some parallels there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one important thing is that the, the trip, the, the journey that the tramp makes goes out and they come back. And usually that they leave Friday after work and they come back after a weekend of roasting sausages over fires in the woods and, and strumming guitars around the campfire. Uh, the movement there is that cycle. It's, it's not like a one-way thing. It's not this longer journey. It, it, it's really a shorter trip on the train and then you come back. So it's much more domestic. It's much more contained. But it's, uh, it's it definitely... Uh, you know, it, it has that idea of, of the movement and uh, and also the, the idea that it, it enriches you, like it, it gives you like life, it, uh, like it, it improves the quality of your life. So it it's but it's not as permanent, maybe as living in the country permanently. And I was surprised to read in this chapter that there was a feeling that there was a lack of real local folklore in this area at, at the same time as all this was happening. Right. And it's connected to the difficult history of 
of this part of the world, this, this crossroads is always fought over all through history, various ways. Uh, there are these natural boundaries, but the Habsburgs took over in the 1600s after the 30 years war. German was the official language. And then you have the, the national revival in the 20th century. So Czech language is reintroduced and restructured. But then you have this uh, difficult history of the Sudetenland and the expulsion of Germans, the expulsion of Czechs, the importation of Roma from Slovakia all the way through the 20th century. There's just in this period of, Bo- in this area of Bohemia, there's just a lot of turmoil and just, you know, 300 years of occupation and Germanization really led to a devaluing of Czech folklore. And it just a, a lot of people really seek out the rare examples of folklore there. And it's very different in Moravia. I need to say Moravia, the, the, part to the east and the south, more towards Slovakia, is it, it has a much more documented and more celebrated practices of folklore and distinctive village and regional uh, outfits and dances and songs and all sorts of, of practices. But I have the feeling that I've got from, from various scholars and other observers that it's just less around Prague because of the cosmopolitan nature of it. And it's sort of uh, its role as a pawn in these larger political and military uh, processes. You also mentioned that something that was kind of influential was uh, Pete Seeger's tour in 1964. Yes, that was a really important moment for people to to realize that they had been playing banjos in tramping music and other forms, maybe Dixieland jazz, other uh, forms of music. And they realized, oh, this music that we've been hearing on American military radio has a banjo. We got that much, but we didn't realize that it had five strings. And I've in interviews with people, they've told me this and they had this realization, a gentleman named Marco Cermak, uh, who's, who's in the book in various parts. He, he just gets all excited when he recalls the moment when he saw the photograph and he said, Oh, it has five strings. So it was a really important moment for them in terms of technical knowledge about the music and what made it up for this particular instrument. Um, so that it was very exciting for people who were interested in the folk movement specifically. And his presence there was just really exciting in it on its own. But for people who were already listening to bluegrass by this time, uh, the, the more knowledge about the banjo was a, a huge revelation. So up until that point, had they been trying to work out how to emulate the music with a four-string banjo? Right. And I, I love it. Marco Chermak just sort of sheepishly recounts, recounted to me all the things he tried to do. He uh, tried to do with a one flat pick or a, a, a plectrum to play the these syncopated roll patterns that uh, Scruggs-style banjoists were using. You know, da 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 trying to do that with, with one pick. Or he said at one point he took a little piece of wood and he put he glued two picks on it to just get more pick strokes i mean he was he just didn't know what, what was going on so that's it was wonderful a, and it, one one great thing after uh, after seeker as well there was a visit uh by another american banjoist who actually sat down with marco chedmak and uh showed him actually how to play and so there were a series of the the, the presence of actual americans was really important for bringing people there here the knowledge of how to how to make this music so in the third chapter it's titled making bluegrass at home abroad and in between and it also includes very much your own involvement in this at home abroad and in betweenness it's kind of a potpourri it's a hodgepodge of different things that i think tie into this theme of of the concrete 
this following up on this idea of the, the concrete people and the movement of people and, and things that uh, make this all happen. Uh, for So I, I focus some on my work with a particular Czech band named Rolls Boys and how just what it was like to travel with them to other countries, to, to play at a bluegrass festival in Hungary, to play a country festival in Norway, to go to uh, Denmark, to the Netherlands, to, to play and, and to, to observe what it's like to be with them and also to see what it was like to compare them to French bluegrass bands and Dutch and uh, um, Italian bluegrass bands and, and to, to meet people who play old time tunes in Denmark and Sweden. So it was just a really important experience for me in terms of context. And it also led to some insights into the specific uh, distinctiveness of the Czech players and the Czech community within the European scene. Of course, I, I bring that back to the idea of in-betweenness and saying that the Czech bluegrassers uh, take, they are given the status of an in-between, uh, in-between uh, European and American because so often these musicians are so accomplished and uh, polished and, and so fluent in the bluegrass styles that they are hired elsewhere in Europe because you can more cheaply hire a Czech band than you can an American band. So they're like a stand-in that does a really good job, uh, but it's it, it comes at a cheaper price. And maybe there's a cachet that they are European. So there's some pride that even in Europe, we have folks who can do this music well. And so how would the Czech musicians, say, compare to the French bluegrass musicians or the Italian bluegrass musicians? I realize that's a very general question, but what did you observe when you saw them playing alongside one another at, at similar events? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not going to compare specifically. I'll say in general, the, first of all, there are more Czech bands. So there, there, uh, for a long time, there's been different, there's different festivals called the European World of, of Bluegrass. And out of a field of 20 odd bands, maybe half, sometimes a little less, sometimes more of those bands would be Czech or Slovak. So just in terms of numbers at these kind of events, the Czechs and Slovaks were there. And it's not because it's easy for them to get there or, or cheap. It's often more difficult for them, for them to get there. But they, they make the effort to go there. And then they're all really high quality bands. So the, that, that's one measure that I, that I saw. Um, and one other thing that I've realized is there, there are good bluegrass bands all, all, over, the Europe, all over Europe, all over the world. Uh, but what I realized distinguished as I talked to some people who come from dif- these different scenes, what is different is that there are a few really good bands in Norway and in France and the Netherlands. But there is not this ground level, grassroots interest in the music that, that, it, that is the reality here in the Czech Republic. That if you walk into a pub in Prague, there is some likelihood that there's going to be a group with a banjo and a guitar and a mandolin playing some bluegrass influenced songs in a corner. It's just a normal part of life here. So it has a different position within the culture than in these other places. And that just makes the community a little different. And what is it like for you being an American musician within this media? You write about this, and I'm curious to hear you speak about it. Right, and it's this typical situation that I think a lot of folklorists find themselves in. I was reading uh, an article by 
uh, Neil Rosenberg that I assigned to my class uh, here in the Czech Republic the other day. And it, it talks about this process of starting as a tourist, as an outsider, and then being involved with specialists and tradition bearers, and then eventually becoming a specialist yourself, crossing over. And so I've been an outsider as a, as a, as a foreigner and as an observer, but but the Czechs really have included the, the Czech people that I that I've come to know very quickly just brought me in. They pulled me into their circles and they said, "Tell us all about bluegrass." You know, we we are really interested. You are an American. You are a primary source. So they were very eager to include me and to to talk to me and help me to speak Czech so we could communicate. And so that that uh, initial stage has often. It really has continued all the way through. People are very welcoming and they're very eager to learn from me. So it, that, this is one thing methodologically, which was difficult for me. Often in this biomusicality mo- uh, model, uh, the the field researcher goes and apprentices themselves to a master musician, a master practitioner somewhere. But it was kind of tricky because coming here, many Czech people thought of me as having this more privileged not, not a guru, but, but someone who had maybe uh, more primary source uh, uh, experience with the bluegrass that, that we were, you know, that we we're all involved in. So that was, it was a tricky, a tricky thing. And eventually I had to um, find a way to deal with that and, and, and write about that and, and use it as a, as a positive aspect of our interactions and, and not have it be a problem. So I've, I've tried to do that in various ways. Can you give an example of one of the ways in which you've tried to do that or have done that? Sure. Well, one thing that I would do to, um, I would say uh, to a, a person, could I interview you? Um, and then in, in return and to reciprocate, I can give you a lesson or we could do, do work on some English pronunciation or um, I can, uh, you know, help you, help you with something that, that something I have can help you with because I'm an American or, uh, so, and sometimes it's less concrete. People are just happy to hang out with me and spend time with me for whatever reason, you know, for their reasons. And so they're very happy to talk with me and to give their time for interviews and, and, and things like that to include me in, in, in things that happen. And I noticed they ask you questions like, does everyone in America eat hamburgers <laughs> every meal? And do they all play bluegrass? Right, right. <laughs> There's there's this great song that that we included in the film, and I talk about some in the book. It's it's called it's it's all about bluegrass and Tennessee. And one verse it says, "Everyone in uh, every farmer and cowboy in the state of Tennessee loves this music, and that's why all of them know how to play it well." Right? It's 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 this idealistic version version of of America. And again, I think it's tongue tongue in cheek. They they play at thinking that everyone in America plays bluegrass, but you know, that when they ask me that, it's it's kind of, they know that the answer is not really everybody. You also talk about one of the ways in which the Czech musical community members are able to travel to America is through making instruments. Absolutely. And that's one of the major influences that Czechs have on the global bluegrass scene, especially on the United States. And I focus more on banjos because that's one of the more distinctive uh, objects within the bluegrass object world, the physical world of bluegrass. And I, also, sure. uh, I was able to meet several people who were really uh, prominent within the banjo building scene here. And so the 
you know, even there, there's an iconic uh, manufacturer of banjos and other instruments in the United States, Gibson, the Gibson company, which has been producing instruments for roughly a century at this point and has been really influential in American and global music from mandolins to guitars and jazz guitars and electric guitars, everything. And so they produced some of uh, what are considered the most uh, prized banjos, especially for bluegrass and other genres uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And I was just so tickled to learn that Gibson company in, I think the early 2000s, uh, was buying some of their metal parts from Czech uh, parts manufacturers. And of course, there's a long story of how this came to be. Uh, various Czechs were able to go to the United States and, and make connections. Uh, and of course, before that, they had uh, little access to the West, especially before 1989. And they had to make all these specialized metal parts that are so essential for a banjo they had to cast them or forge them uh, or tool them or however the metal processes are. They had to manufacture them and stamp them because there wasn't any other way that they could get them. So they had their own homemade parts. And then eventually they got to such a high level that they were sought after by, uh, by the American market. And they still are. Uh, the Gibson company is not really making that many acoustic instruments anymore, especially not banjos. Hopefully that'll change soon. But uh, the, there are other mark um, retailers that sell these check parts and they're very highly regarded. I love reading about this because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I have read along the way that one of the reasons there are some of these instruments over in America, like mandolins, for example, is because when immigrants arrived from Eastern Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they either brought the instruments with them or they got them by catalog from back home. And so it seems like there's a little parallel going on, or is that not correct? Oh, I'd like a citation on that. I don't know if I said that. No, 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 you, di- you didn't say it. I have read it elsewhere. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Okay. The, the, well, I'm very curious about that. I don't know. The, the, the connections between uh, people who immigrated with the home country were, still, were very strong. I definitely know that. And there was a lot of journalism and other things that connected. I didn't know about catalog ordering that would have gone back and forth. That may be a little fabrication of my own. There's there's a bluegrass musician I know who is working here on a project that is fascinating. It looks at um, uh, g- instrument manufacturing here within Bohemia and how instruments that were manufactured on a mass scale here were exported all over the world. He, he's focusing mainly on jazz guitars, archtop guitars, but there are a lot of other instruments as well, especially fiddles, also uh, mandolins and guitars. Speaking of the fiddle, that's what you're talking about in Chapter 4, learning and playing Americanness on the fiddle. And you start by saying that the level of fiddle playing in general is not quite at the level of the banjo playing amongst the musicians in the Czech Republic. That's an impression that I have, and it's also a, an impression and maybe a complaint that I sometimes hear from, from Czechs here. Yes. So this is something for me to talk about musical style and in the process of learning, it was much easier for me to discuss uh, fiddles and fiddling because that's my main instrument. So I, I sought out uh, fiddlers and spent time with them and was able to interview them and observe them and just recorded and, and provided some interpretation for how they spoke about the, the difficulties of learning and 
and the pleasures of it. And what, one of the things that, that I came to as I was writing all this up is that if you're talking about bluegrass fiddle style, if you're coming to this as a late 20th or early 21st century Czech fiddle player, there's so many choices that you have. Uh, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're just kind of entering the fray and you're just figuring out if I want to play bluegrass fiddle, there's so many choices you have for what you should do. There are so many different approaches to the fiddle and that's true with the other instruments as well, but that's one of the things I think for all Czechs who are playing music, if if they don't already have maybe an assigned role, like I, or if they don't have some specific inspiration, I want to play fiddle like Bobby Hicks or or like uh, Chubby Wise, uh, these iconic players. If they don't have that, if they just want to play bluegrass fiddle, how do they learn it? There's just a hundred different ways that they could. So it's like a, and that's that's something that's a, a part of the cultural uh, free, the detachedness of Czech bluegrass. Like they, ha- the, the slate is wide open. They're, they're not limited to what they can choose aesthetically in terms of approach necessarily. So it's almost too much possibility. Um, and then other things uh, came up. And I think one thing is that I found is that Czechs often are just kind of hesitant I think I was often, I often found myself saying, saying that in response to a Czech filler who would say, oh, I'm not very good. I was like, you are really good. I think you just need to be more confident. And I found myself sort of like this in a role, in, in an interview, perhaps being like a, uh, like a, a support team member, you know, like counseling them, like saying, just encouraging them. Uh, it's, there, it was, it was interesting to do this chapter. You also discuss in this chapter more about the value of Americanness for today's Czechs. Um, in as much as you can sum that up, what, what would you say that is? Well, that, it's it's complicated. I, the I, one of the points I talk about in there is specific kinds of Americanness. For instance, the Confederate flag um, and other I, iconic um, elements of Southernness, and of course many of the elisions that happen uh, within the United States and abroad with uh, Americanness is there are Southern Southernness, Americanness, rurality, uh, Appalachianness, all these possible sort of Venn diagram intersections of, of Americanness. Um, and so I, one of the people I interviewed was a fiddler of uh, Roma ethnicity named David and it was, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk about what uh, what Americanness means and how, for instance, he he might feel about uh, the the potentially uh, nationalist or more xenophobic uh, aspects or the, the qualities that people might have who are participating in the music who are. Uh, fans of Southernness. Now, I'd, I will say that most, for the most part, people are not aware of the potentially hateful or, or uh, hurtful uh, qualities of something like the Confederate flag. Uh, they just are ignorant of it. But I think sometimes at this point, our, our world is so global and connected and people here are normal Western smartphone toting people with hefty data plans. They, it's, perhaps can be a willful ignorance more now than it used to be. So that was a really interesting discussion. Absolutely. 
So the last chapter is called Singing Truth, Fidelity and Play in Czech Bluegrass Gospel. And this is another really fascinating investigation because the religious background of many of the players that you interact with is quite different from that typically associated with musicians who play bluegrass or historically played bluegrass in the U.S. Right. And it's people commonly say that the Czech Republic is the most I guess the most uh, atheist country in Europe. And it, it, that's, as far as I've been able to tell, looking at the literature, that, that may be true. Uh, but with the people who, with whom I've worked, there are just a handful who would say that they are Christian believers. And the case study that I took on for this, or the group that I really focused on for this chapter, is a group that's really known, or that was really known as performers of gospel material. And of course, I was interested to learn on talking with them that none of them identified as active Christian believers. They would identify with this on the level of sort of Western culture being in some ways generally Christian and saying there is a heritage in Europe of Christianity, among other things. But they they could identify it to that extent, but not personally in terms of their faith. So talking with them about how they came to play gospel music and what they value about it, and then particularly with the mandolinist of this group, Tomasz, uh, talking with him about things that troubled him about playing music, because he uh, related in re- during the ethnographic presence of the interviews, he was uh, expressing some misgivings about playing this gospel repertory and saying things that he didn't believe. And so how does he negotiate that process? Well, one of the solutions that the group came up with was to uh, dis- to not do, to not play, not perform songs that had these more personal declarations of faith and to try and do more of the songs that perhaps told stories from the Bible. And uh, Tomas was saying that that's not as, as uh, hard for him to say. Like it's, it's part of this, I think he called it something like the Western heritage of this Judeo-Christian history and these texts, but it doesn't express a strong uh, sense of belief. And then the other thing is that already the group was transitioning from, from being what they, what they were at the time, uh, one of the, just really known as a performer of these uh, gospel pieces, especially a cappella, complex vocal harmony pieces. And they were playing more and more of banjoist Zbigniew Buresh's original numbers, which uh, that was... It was moving them away from, they were, I think they were really well known and really sought after for these gospel numbers. Audiences really liked them, both in the Czech Republic and abroad. But they were trying to, I think, create a different profile for themselves. And I think they were, they were caught between the audience, the commercial appeal of, of the gospel numbers and what they wanted to do themselves. Right. And just to clarify, when they're singing the gospel songs, are they singing them in English or are they singing them in translation or a mixture? Now, that's a really good point, and I didn't clarify this earlier. There, this, this free, open palette that they have in, that Czechs have in, in playing bluegrass, it includes link language and, and aesthetic approach and chronological date. Like, are they playing early bluegrass or contemporary bluegrass? It's all open, uh, whether they dress up in cowboy hats or just play in normal street clothes. So, Relief had chosen a more uh, contemporary performance aesthetic and also to sing in English. And also they don't, they don't, they never wore cowboy hats or things like that. So they, that was their particular constellation of things that they chose to create their version of bluegrass. 
And you've described them as being very popular for these these renditions of bluegrass gospel songs. So the audience, although probably for the most part atheists, also really appreciated them. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that the band members would say is they don't really think that a lot of the people in the audience understood the words. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons that people in an audience would not find that objectionable. You know, there's churches all over the landscape here. So even though you might not go to a service, right, you're, you're used to these uh, iconic elements of Christianity in the landscape. And then it's not a chapter, but you've got something called a tag, America, <laughs> slash America with a K. What's that? <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a, a mess of, of a title, I know. No, it's, it's very intriguing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's mysterious. It's it's a chance to revisit these things that I, op- that I opened with and to also just circle back to some of really important figures and wrap up. And also for me to, as as I was finishing up writing the book, to sort of go back to the present of the writing because a lot of the materials in the book come from different time periods. So I kind of say, where, where are they now? Um, like the, that group Relief that was in the previous chapter no longer play together. So I just, I, I kind of had a chance to say that. And I, um, I, I focus on two people. One is Milan Marek who goes to uh, the United States and he just had this fantastic, we had this amazing interview. We were in the car driving and he was talking and he was pounding the steering wheel, recalling how exciting it was to go to the United States. That's so lovely. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. It still makes me smile to remember it. And then all, <laughs> and just so powerful, so tangible, his, his excitement. But then also interviewing Marco Cermak, this venerable, uh, very important figure with the banjo from the 1960s talking about why he chose not to go to the United States. Even though he was invited in various times, he was given a, an award by the International Bluegrass Music Association to come to the States and receive it for this sort of bridge builder or foundational importance, uh, distinguished award. And he chose not to do. He told me that in an interview that he had seen uh, pictures and videos of people from the Czech Republic traveling to the United States. And he said, all those highways and hotels, you just play, pay to this sort of bleak roadside mm. culture of access roads and, and cheap motels. And he said, I didn't want to ruin this imagined America that I have. Uh, and he, we were sitting outside his cabin that has been used as a tramp cabin and, and used by him for decades now in a beautiful uh, part of the woods southwest of Prague in the Burdi Hills. And he says, this is my America. Why would I want to go there? This, that was another really powerful uh, experience for me, and it was it was fun to include that there at the end. It it leaves this. It really re, it reinforces this idea of the in betweenness and the creation of this America with a K that is neither Czech and in or American, but it's somehow a play with both of them. That's just a wonderful ending. Now, before we move on, is there anything you want to say about the book that I didn't ask you about? Oh, I doubt that I need to prattle on any more <laughs> about it. So, tell us what are you working on now. Well, so this year I am seeking to expand my research. So uh, you can tell reading the book that my research really just focuses on a, a select archipelago of people and communities. Everyone seems to be interrelated. And that's true in the whole scene. It's a small country. It's a small scene. But I really do want to reach outside of the circles that I've become used to circulating within and to also talk to more people on different levels of, of engagement to talk to more professionals who work in different parts of the movie uh, of the music, like concert promoters and people who own music stores 
and to uh, talk to more just normal people who participate in the music in different ways and to have more of a geographic diversity. Uh, also, I've developed this more critical uh, edge to my work. So far, I think it's been pretty celebratory. I think this book is critical in terms of investigating and questioning cultural elements and things like that. But uh, I think my engagement with the music it is still going on. I still love it. I still love a lot of the people that I'm involved with here, but in general, I'm, I'm questioning things as particularly with political changes that are going on right now and the ways that I see that bluegrass can be a part of expression of things that I find distasteful. So this mm. is, this has been hard for me because one tries to be a neutral objective, right? In some ways, but this, I'm finding it harder to do that in some ways, but I'm also really scared to to push out and and try and say, and I'm trying to figure out what is the appropriate way to um, to do some cultural criticism that that isn't neutral in some way, but that that actually, or, or at least that would identify perhaps some of the ways that uh, people here in the Czech Republic might use bluegrass or bluegrass might inform their uh, anti-Islam feelings or uh, anti-immigration politics. Well, that sounds like uh, <laughs> a, mi- a minefield. <laughs> that does indeed sound like a minefield. And I, I think it will be incredibly interesting to read how you negotiate your way across that particular minefield for everyone who does field work. But we have taken up a lot of your time, so I'm going to let you go now. But I want to thank you, Lee Biggood, for taking part in this New Books in Folklore podcast and telling us about Czech Bluegrass Notes from the Heart of Europe book, which was published last year. And also to remind our listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one of the many channels available on the New Books Network. So thank you, Lee, and have a wonderful rest of day. Thanks so much. You too.